the consensus, that's an odd word, but the consensus amongst the folk account is that it seems around 10% of names actually have these attached DNSSEC signatures and the other 90% don't. And the question, you know, is, well, are they just ignorant folk who haven't yet heard of DNSSEC or are they not signing it for a reason? And you look at some of the folk who don't sign and the classic one that many folks say is, well, what about Google.com? Not signed. Is that because they haven't heard of DNSSEC? Yeah, right. The DNS public resolver operated by Google, 8888, does DNSSEC validation. Of course they know about DNSSEC. Of course the folk there are perfectly well informed around the state of the art of this technology, yet they choose not to sign their name. You're listening to Ping, a podcast by APNIC discussing all things related to measuring the internet. I'm your host, George Michelson. This time, we're talking to Jeff Houston from APNIC Labs in his regular monthly spot on Ping. Jeff and I are discussing the case for and against DNSSEC. Jeff, welcome back to Ping. What have you got for us this time? George, you know, look, it's always a pleasure. And what have I got for you? I have been over the last, I don't know, few years really, exploring the wonderful world of the domain name system, which as I work for the IP addressing people in APNIC, seems to be a little bit out of the reservation. But I've kind of come to the realization over the years that with the exhaustion of V4 addresses and you know, just between you and me. And the listeners. And the listeners, yes, hello all. Just between you and me, this whole transition to V6 is not a stellar success story. It's been, well, I wouldn't say disaster, but no one could have predicted where we are. So we've broken the address plant. We've broken it. There's no coherency anymore. In V4, it's stuffed full of gnats. And V6 is only partially done. So what defines the internet? It's not we're all living in one wonderful, happy address land. We're all living in one wonderful, happy name land. It's names these days that define the internet. So how names work, why names work, and the ultimate question about any communication system, can you trust names, actually becomes the most basic, and I would actually argue the most important question of our time about the internet. So there are qualities of what we call the domain name system that actually have a functional role for us in addressing. People like to think about the names that they type and they look up, the public names that their bank and that their local movie house and their preferred shop use online. There is a component of the namespace that actually is about numbers, the reverse lookup function. So that's kind of off to one side here, although it may perhaps come back in. But you're taking a more holistic view. If we have somewhat broken the processes around a unitary numbering system, but we still have a unitary naming system, that's where the value is. Right. These days, and indeed, I suppose, forever, That sort of fundamental thing was very, very simple. I enter a name 
a domain name, a particular form of name, and the wonders of the internet take me there. And if it's the name of my bank, the next screen I expect to see is my banking screen. If it's the name of Google, I expect to see a search engine, etc. And if I don't, I am very perplexed. I am discombobulated. I am thrown a wobbly because the name system is meant to take me where I expect it to go. So we're putting quite a high amount of trust in availability, trust in reliability, trust in accuracy. We really need to believe the name system is doing what we need. Well, let me say it even further. We all believe the name system is doing the right thing. No one checks. Is that really my bank? No, you just type in your username and password. Is that really Google? No, enter this data. We just don't view the internet with a scepticism that says, you know, there's a chance it couldn't be right. And indeed, most of the time, and by most 99 point lots of nines percent, it is right that where we wanted to go, that name, what appears in front of our very eyes is what we expected to see. It went to predictable places. But as always, when you scratch the surface of this, it starts to get a bit shaky because the underlying technology is not very robust. It really isn't. Look, I live at a certain address on a certain street and the expectation of the rest of the world is if they front up at that the right place, they're going to see Jeff. But what if Jeff moves? Well, everyone fronts up at the right place and the person answering the door is Jeff. But it's not me. But they go, well, I went to the right address. I went to the right place. Therefore, the answer is always Jeff. How did you know that? Well, I didn't. I just assumed that if I asked the right IP address, I got the right answer. So in the real world, we have sort of logistical mechanisms to do things like address forwarding, no longer at this address. And you can pay for a limited service for some delivery functions to intercept things going from where you say you are to where you really are to make sure things work out. But it's kind of 80-20 rule, isn't it? I think all of us have had that lived experience of the guy who lived where you live 15 years ago, <laughs> and you're writing on the envelope, not at this address. Absolutely. It, it never stops. But nonetheless, I kind of get what you're saying. There's a belief if I arrive at the place that I've been told in the past is where you are, I expect you to be there. And there are times I'll behave as if it is you if the right tickles come back to me on the internet. The problem is you aren't there necessarily. Right. And we've had this problem in the web, in the DNS, in almost any application. And in the early days of the internet, oh, trusting fools that we were, we kind of said, look, that's not a problem we can easily solve. We'll just work on the principle. If you send your packets to the right IP address, whatever that means, I can trust the answer. Now, when the internet started getting popular and all kinds of people with all kinds of motives started appearing on the online, people were doing really bad things in the web. People were substituting one page for another. All those early online experiences were subject to all kinds of rather nasty manipulation because we're all gullible and the systems we were using 
more importantly, were incredibly gullible. And so the response was actually one that started with Netscape, remember that name, in the mid-90s. And it was kind of going, you know, why don't I use the wonderful world of cryptography? And I'm going to create, in the real world, we call them notaries. I go to this trusted person whom (laughs) everybody trusts, which, as I say, it sounds ridiculous. But I get them to sign a paper saying, Jeff wrote this, signed the notary. And then I send you my letter and I send you the notary's affirmation, confirmation that it was really me. And in theory, in the notary system, because notaries never lie, you can then take that notary signed attestation and go, well, Jeff really sent that because you trust the notary. Now, you're not necessarily trusting me but you are trusting a higher authority, someone who, in theory, has passed some tests. I've had experiences in international travel where I had to take documents from Australia with me to get residency and other paperwork done. And I actually spent a couple of happy hours in a federal government department having a red sticker put on the back of my birth certificate called an apostille. And they literally have a filing cabinet full of the historical signatures of all the state registrars of births, deaths and marriages. And they look at your form and they compare the signature with the recorded signature. And if they're comfortable, it looks like the real deal. They affix an apostille to say, yup, we checked this. And there's a part of me still that thinks, wow, the world believes I had a valid instance because it had a red sticky star on the back, which someone had counterstamped with the crown of Australia. Trust is very weird sometimes. Trust is really weird. And we created the digital equivalent. You see, there are these functions in cryptography called hash functions. And hash functions are kind of weird. I feed it some data. How much? Oh, a few bytes, a few megabytes, a few gigabytes. I feed it some data. And oddly enough, I can feed it almost any size of data. And what it does is it produces a fixed length, unique pattern of bits, 384 bits, 256 bits, whatever the algorithm I choose. And That pattern that is derived from the document has some very wonderful properties. If I give you this so-called hash function, you cannot recreate the document I use to generate it. You can't. It's a one-way function. Secondly, if I make even the slightest change, I change the value of one bit. The hash function is not only different, it's dramatically different. So when I give you a hash function and say, George, do your damnedest, find a document that produces the same hash function, you're never going to do it. It is computationally infeasible. So oddly enough, these hash functions look a lot like signatures. So now what I can do, a bit like your notary experience and mine as well and my apostate, I can take my digital document and take it to one of these so-called certification authorities and produce a hash function, which they then sign over with their own keys and produce a new hash function that says, 
I saw this. It's real. If you trust me, you trust Jeff. So the web PKI turned to this because we needed something and we started to use a standard of certification, which in the wonderful world of it was the CCITT, and I think it was taken on by the ITUT, the X series of standards. It's X509, public key certificates. But this is not really a story about certification and certificates, although it might get that way. This is actually a story about, well, that's the way the web solved it, but what about the DNS? Because the DNS, which is actually one of the oldest protocols on the internet, I think it predates TCP, which is saying a lot. It's certainly been around since day one. And this entire issue of I feed a distributed database a name and it pops back with an IP address. Miracle, you know, has been around since forever. But the issue is with the DNS, it has a whole series of problems. We're in a very trusting world. So all of those protocol messages, all the packets on the wire, were unencrypted, really unencrypted. So when you ask a question, hi, what's the IP address of, I don't know, www.potteroo.net, you accept as real the first answer you get used to be from anyone. These days, people are a little bit more skeptical, but you just accept any old answer. The first one you get is the truth. So the lack of cryptography associated with asking the question and accepting the answer. It's actually a twofold component, isn't it? Because the first part is you ask the question in the clear. Everybody knew what you asked if they could see your packets on the wire. And the second thing is you believed the answer, the first one that came back. So there's both, I know what you asked, and I think I'll tell you what I want you to know is in that situation. and. Oddly enough, it's even better than that, or worse, because if I can guess what you're going to ask, I don't even need to see your question. I just flood you with candidate answers, and if I get it right, get the answer into the right format, and you're going to go, oh, I was waiting for an answer for that. Thank you, unknown person who's been doing source address spoofing and crafting responses. I'll take that answer and run with it. So a third quality here is the internet could be defined as a place where if there's a clever trick that somebody can play on you, somebody's going to play it. Totally, and it probably already has been played. So let's go back and just understand this a little bit, and let's talk about the astonishing credulity, and I think that's the word I want to use. It's this English word that says, you'll believe anything, and it's your problem. You shouldn't be so trusting of a very hostile world. The DNS is in the clear. Anyone can see it. The DNS uses forwarding. You never know where your query goes. You never know where the answers come from. So if someone substitutes anywhere out there, it happens without your knowledge because you don't know. You'll accept the first answer you get because you know, credulous. And so that combination tied with the fact that everything, literally everything we do on the internet, starts with a call to the DNS, kind of means that if I can control your DNS and offer you the wrong answers, I own you. 
I own your experience, I own you. And we've had various attacks over the years of this form. Some of them have been tied in with attacks on the web PKI, such that I give you the wrong answer and I subtly pervert the certificate system to actually give you what looks like a real certificate associated with that fake answer. And it was certainly noted some years ago now, so it was caught and and plugged. And the dear old Egyptians were caught basically giving the wrong DNS answer, intercepting the packets that Egyptian users thought they were sending to Gmail, but instead they were actually talking to the folk, the state folk, tapping the wire and getting all their secrets in mail. So this is not just hacker fun time. This is serious stuff, very serious stuff. And once you hear those stories about the way this gets corrupted structurally, there was nothing wrong with the user's software, nothing. The infrastructure had been warped in ways that no one could tell unless you looked really, really hard. And no one looks that hard because you're not even sure what you're looking for. So in a world where the protocol makes assumptions that truth lies in the packet sent and received, and they're a world where your ISP state actors, intermediaries may have reasons to want or need to give you different answers, you kind of head to a place where most of the time nobody's checking and you simply don't know if you've been led to the right place. Or right. And so the DNS is a playground for all kinds of folk, including governments. I live in Australia. There are domain names that an Australian ISP, if I'm their customer, will not translate in the DNS for me. Now, you kind of go, I'm being protected from evil. That's great. But on the other hand, the Australian government is saying to these various service providers, it's okay to lie in the DNS. Assert that this name doesn't exist when in reality it does. And you kind of go, your motives are pure. This is good because you're not evil, you're pure of heart, but lying is lying. doesn't matter what purpose you lied for, the fact that you could get away with this, you could do this, does not make the rest of us feel good. Because what I want to see in the DNS is what folk put in there, not the lies that other folk want to use to misdirect me. So we have a strong motivation to think about re-engineering this system to restore some sense of believable trust in what we ask and what we're told. Ah, you used an interesting word there, George. So I want trustability. I want verifiability. All those good words to say, I want to test the answer because I'm not sure I believe it. But the issue is, How many systems, how many software stacks, how many bits of DNS are out there to the closest billion? And, you know, the answer is, wow, I can't change an awful lot because if I contemplated doing that, the internet is now everything, everyone, everywhere. That ain't going to happen and no one's going to pay for it. So I've got to be a little more subtle about this. And This is where the long saga of security for the DNS, DNSSEC, started. Can we tinker? Can we add on some bells and whistles to the DNS as we know it, such that we can attach these weird forms of signatures, attach 
these hash function results to DNS answers so that if someone receives the answer and that digital signature, that result of that hash function, then with a certain amount of work, they can, I suppose, satisfy themselves that the data they got was the data that the original zone manager had entered into the DNS. No one has changed it. So in lots of engineering endeavours, when you decide you need to make a change to the engine room underneath what you do, if I use a car analogy, you drive the car off to the side of the road and you make the change to the engine and you drive off again. So you stop the world, you make the changes, you carry on. There's a verbal description of what we're doing here in the DNS, which I really like. It's changing the engines mid-flight. We didn't want to turn off the DNS, have a quiet day while we tinker with the protocol and make differences and turn it back on again. We want to find a way to incrementally add this component of behavior with the least necessary outage in the DNS while we're doing it. Well, we didn't want to disturb the folk who are having a good time. And if we've learned anything from IPv6, trying to introduce a technology that is not backward compatible, that you actually need to change the end systems, change the stacks to talk this new protocol has been, well, I hesitate to use the word disaster, but let's just go there. It's been a disaster. We're now years and years and years down a track that we never thought we would be because if you're not backward compatible and you've got to change everything to speak this new thing, folk are going to do this on their own timetable and they're going to take as long as it takes, which is now more than decades. So what we wanted with the DNS was to add this authentication mechanism. Here's enough reasons why you yourself, don't take my word for it, can validate the answer, but do so in a way that if you're not doing that, the DNS is still the DNS. It works the same way as it always did. So another quality in how the IETF likes to think about itself and re-engineer is although we do sometimes try five, six, seven different things at once, there's a really strong tendency to try to stick to models we know work. And as you've laid out for us, there's a model of public-private keying, cryptography based on public-private keys. This became the natural target for the mechanistic thing we were going to do to put some verifiability and trust back into the DNS. So it kind of feels like we could go to, great, we put certificates in the DNS and we solved the problem and everything's done and we can stop talking now. But I have a feeling you're not going to say that. Well, let's just sort of talk about the case four, and I think we've been gently leading into why DNSSEC, why using it, is a really good idea. Unfortunately, the web PKI is only as good as a full-blown armor suit made of wet tissue paper. Because you end up trusting around about 1,500 to 2,000 folk who you've never met, who some do things for money and they don't care what they do for money, and issue certificates under grounds that are at best dubious. And the ones that have tie-ins with folk whose motives are not the same as mine tend to do things which are, in retrospect, not very good. 
So the mechanistic way that this exposes is that we're sitting in a world where we run browsers. They might be Microsoft Edge, it might be Chrome, it might be Firefox, it might be Safari. These browsers come from the factory, so to speak, with a bubble of belief baked into them called trust anchors. And those trust anchors, they're the flag, the signature, the grounding information for everyone of these certificate authorities that are issuing names. And you or I would think, okay, let's have two or three, because after all, one might not work, but let's have two or three. But no, the truth is, as you say, it's a thousand, it's 2000, it's a large number of things are being baked into our browsers to ground the assertions of certificates about websites. So there, there are two problems with this structure. One is, of course, if the manufacturing process is corrupted and I can insert a rogue trust anchor into the firmware of a device, then, ooh, that's bad. Has that ever happened? Yes. Ooh, that's bad. The next thing about this is that you don't know which was the correct certificate authority for the name you're trying to check. And so, I go to my mate, Digital Trust Incorporated, the very nice people who do things properly, and they issue me with a certificate that says that's Jeff and that's Jeff's domain name. And someone else goes to or invents the shady certificate authority and invents a certificate for my name. Then if they can do that, and if that certificate authority is in the trust club, and there are an awful lot of people in the trust club, then the unwitting victim, when presented with this fake certificate, knows no different. They don't know which CA was meant to be the right one. So they blithely go, that's a certificate. It's been signed by a trusted CA. Therefore, I will happily go into this layer of hell and be duped and deceived. And how do we fix that is actually a really big issue. Because we can try and pick up the rogue events after they occur. That doesn't stop them occurring. It just means the cleanup team. Houses still burning down. You have a fire brigade and that stops it burning forever, but it doesn't stop it at the start. So the web PKI is not enough. If you really want a secure environment, you have to look beyond that. And as I said, a broken DNS is disastrous for the internet. And so we get to this kind of point almost of desperation. And the best way I can describe the case for DNSSEC, because we're about to look at the case against it, the case for it is along the lines of anything, anything is better than nothing, better than nothing. I must admit, in some ways, it's the path to compromise. It's the path to suboptimal solutions. It's the path that kind of, you're not quite sure if it's a step forward or a step back, but it's not where you are today. So let's go to the foundations that we have in the current world from DNSSEC. Our experience path was webs are using PKI, DNSSEC winds up using PKI. Web is using multiple certificate authorities and it has this massive problem, who validates the name and the identity. DNS went to a single apex rather than having multiples. So it made a policy and an architecture in deployment difference. But substantively, if we park that, the actual cryptography component behind it 
that's actually a reasonably well understood behavior. But that policy difference, let's go to a single apex, that's quite a big difference. Well, you know, let's pick apart this a little bit because DNSSEC is not a traditional PKI in the sense of these X509 standards. They borrowed interlocking keys. And this is almost a bit like Merkle chains and blockchain. <laughs> you know, I hesitate to mention it here, but it's the same thing. Insofar as if I take your key and sign across it with my key, then the result is something that I'm saying, this is George's key. If you believe everything that Jeff does, then you can believe my sign across your key. Now, in the X509 world, I would create a digital thing, a certificate to say, I have inspected George's key, I have done the necessary processes, and here is a digital blob signed by my private key, so only I could have signed it, and I can't repudiate it, that says, that's George's public key, signed Jeff. The DNSSEC design decided not to add that infrastructure. It's expensive, it's difficult, it does have its problems, and they never really solved the trust anchor issue. Instead, they went back to the structure of the DNS names itself. The DNS is a very funny namespace. It's what we call a rooted hierarchy. There's only one root of all of the names that we use. I think there was an even advertising campaign from Sun. It was the dot at the end. Because all domain names have a silent dot www.potteroo.net dot. Because all of these so-called top-level names, net, com, au, jp, you know, etc., are all registered in one domain, one super domain called the root. And so the way this kind of works is if I get my name, www.potteroo.net, www signed by potteroo.net, who gets that signed by .NET, and the .NET folk get .NET signed by the root, then this is a chain of interlocking signatures that go from my name to the root. And instead of trusting a 1,000, 2,000 folk to always do the right thing and never lie, I'm now just trusting one key, the root key. And I'm only trusting one bunch of people the bunch of people who look after the root zone and the root key. And in some ways, I feel better because there's a lot fewer moving parts and a lot fewer points of making hairy independent decisions that go wrong, but there is a point of vulnerability. If that key is ever compromised, and by compromised, somebody else learns the value of that private key and can therefore generate things in the name of the root of the DNS, then we're in a dark place and we don't know how to get out of it. Damage is unlimited. But in the same way, I believe in the web PKI, because any certificate authority can sign any name uh, assertion, it's the same dark place. So in some ways, it's no worse than a PKI, a conventional PKI, but the single point of authority kind of limits the amount of badness. So there is a socialized aspect of how we behave about this belief and this trust that I think is a qualitative difference between the two. Because for the multitude of trust anchors in a browser, 
I have no visibility into the mechanistic processes behind how they decide to use their private key. It's a private association between them to decide what's considered appropriate behavior. I have a little bit of exposure to perhaps a mailing list or a policy discussion. Periodically, people are thrown out of the club for misbehaving, but it's a little opaque. In the DNS, we made a decision to vest mechanistic processes of using that root key with something that is called a ceremony. And it's an odd word because it sounds a little bit religious, but what it provides is public exposure to how were the keys used. Now, of course, there is always belief underlying this. So there's belief the keys are not taken out of locked boxes except at these times. And there's a certain amount of mechanistic behavior, sealed bags with numbers, one-time use sticky labels, things that are done to reinforce the belief. There's also the socialization. I know the people who are going into that room and looking. You do too. We know these people. And although we might joke about the ceremony, it provides a socialized component of belief. We're mostly okay with how these keys are being used. And to me, that's quite an important distinction. All of that is true. But if DNSSEC has, and it does have, more than one Achilles heels, the points of weakness are not the derivation of the root key or its integrity. I think, actually, the folk looking after that are doing a damn fine job. And certainly the lack of incidents so far, including we got away with one key roll, kind of says that's okay. But there's a whole lot about DNSSEC that says, are you insane? Why are you doing this? So let's go through the case against DNSSEC. Why would folk not sign their names? Because an awful lot don't. And in fact, just to start this off, if you can do a census of all the DNS names on the internet, which is a ridiculous statement because we can't, but when we take small corralled subsets of names and start counting, The consensus, that's an odd word, but the consensus amongst the folk account is that it seems around 10% of names actually have these attached DNSSEC signatures and the other 90% don't. And the question, you know, is, well, are they just ignorant folk who haven't yet heard of DNSSEC or are they not signing it for a reason? And you look at some of the folk who don't sign and the classic one that many folks say is, well, what about Google.com? not signed. Is that because they haven't heard of DNSSEC? Yeah, right. The DNS public resolver operated by Google, 8888, does DNSSEC validation. Of course they know about DNSSEC. Of course the folk there are perfectly well informed around the state of the art of this technology, yet they choose not to sign their name. So we start at the top, the apex dot It now has a signature mechanism, and it's a very high-trust public authority function with ceremonies to build belief it's capable of making valid six. And we have what are called the top-level domains, TLDs, and they divide into two sets, CCTLDs, economy codes, often associated with state national enterprises. They don't really form contracts because nation states don't. They could do DNSSEC or not. It's their choice as a state actor, but a lot of them have. Some do, some don't. Some do it badly, some do it well, but yes. And 
GTLDs, general TLDs, and they tend to be bound in contracts under this. And they tend nowadays to be told, you don't have to make all the things in you have DNSSEC, but you need to provide the service. So google.com, lying under .com, .com is signed. .com provides the mechanism to register keys over a name like Google. If google.com isn't signed, it's not because they can't sign. They have to have made a conscious decision here not to do it. It is because Google decided they did not wish to have their name signed because that's your choice. And the way we've done backward compatibility is that at any point in the delegation chain, you can decide not to sign and that's your call. It doesn't break it for anyone else apart from you and your descendants. So that's, I suppose, really the question. Why not? Why did they not sign? Well, this gets interesting because the way DNSSEC actually is working is that it's a classic DNS bolt-on. The DNS actually has a thing called resource records. They're named attributes of a name. So we talk about A records when we talk about the IP address of a name. We talk about quad A, literally A, 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 A. Uh, which is the IPv6 address of a name. But we also have other attributes. There's this sort of kitchen sink called text, TXT, where you can actually put in freeform text. And if you ask for the text record of a name, if it has one, it will give it back to you. We have records that assist in the delivery of electronic mail, MX records, etc. So what we did was we added a small number of additional attributes. And one of them was actually what we call the RRSIG, resource record SIG. And it's actually an attribute of a name. It includes some dates to say, this only became valid on this date. And if the date is beyond that date, don't use it because it's gone old and you shouldn't trust it. But it also includes as a value, the hash function applied to the other resource record that it is talking about. So I can sign my A record. So I'll have an RRSIG for the A record. I can sign my quad A record. I'll have an RRSIG for the quad A. And any other record in a zone, and more to the point, every record in a zone is signed. And you kind of go, well, that's terrific. That's fantastic. Well done, folk. But then you get to the interesting question. What if I have a domain with labels A, and then B. And I ask for AA. Well, obviously that name doesn't exist. So I'm going to hand back, nice try, but no. But in the world of DNSSEC, why should I believe you? I would actually like to have something that I can test to say AA isn't a name. So how do you sign something that doesn't exist? (laughs) And it's kind of a curious question because I'd like a signature, please. I'd like something to validate that this does not exist. And the solution, I thought, was bizarre but logical because what we do in DNSSEC is that we assemble the entire zone and then we use dictionary ordering because they're just ASCII characters. So, you know, we know what ordering is about. So we order all the names precisely. 
And then we have this funny record, a spanning record. So in my case, I'd have an NSEC record, NSEC, that says all the names that you could possibly think that are ordered between A and B don't exist, signed by the zone owner, the zone admin. So now when you say, you ask for AA, I say, no such domain, and here's a signed attestation that says that falls into a gap, and here's the signed gap. It's signed. It's real. That's a gap that existed in the original zone. Um, So what do you need to make these records work? You need to get the zone, order it, and sign it. Okay, I, in my zones, have a few hundred entries. Well, that'll take, I don't know, a couple of seconds, and that's on a slow machine. But what if you're running .com? Oops. 300 million. Well, 600 so, million. And in, in some ways, you kind of go, wow, it really sucks to be big, doesn't it? Yeah. Because all of a sudden, this idea of pre-provisioning the signatures and putting these attached signatures into the zone as a snapshot doesn't actually work operationally. And so when you're big, you're in your own little private version of hell trying to figure out how to do the signing of things that doesn't exist, that don't exist. So there's the other dimension because the big case, it's mechanistically easy to see why you'd have a bit of how do I do that. But the other case is if you need to change the set of labels you have in you, very, very frequently. Or if you need to change the values behind the labels very, very frequently, you have a similar problem, don't you? If the way you operate your name means lots of change all the time, everywhere, signing is actually quite a pain. So signing adds cost. Okay, but that's not the only place where cost is added. Now, of course, when I give you an answer, because you've said, I'm okay with DNSSEC, and there's even a flag called DNSSEC okay. I will gratuitously add the signature. And oddly enough, it's on by default. So when we look at the DNS, about 70 to 75% of all DNS responses will have an attached signature if the zone is signed. Go back to previous thing, but only 10% of zones are signed. It's not as bad as you think, but it is interesting. Why? Because signatures are not small. If they were small, they could be easily faked. And we've gone through a number of generations of cryptographic technology, because as computers get faster and more capable, it's possible to crack simple cryptographic signing mechanisms if they produce short answers. Imagine a hash algorithm that produces either one or zero. Even if you just guess, you'll be right 50% of the time. Two bits, it's also trivial. So we need bigger and bigger signatures, bigger and bigger keys. And we're now talking, which I never thought would be possible, about quantum cryptography. And while we've yet to actually see production-level quantum crypto, there's a whole lot of work making what we call post-quantum crypto, PQC. And the keys... And the algorithms are intense, and they're often very big. Okay, so what do we mean by big? Well, it's not megabytes. Well, it can be, but it's probably not, because that's a bit unwieldy. But currently, signatures are around 
a few hundred bytes up to a kilobyte or two. Well, that's easy. Nothing wrong with a kilobyte. Roll back to the DNS again, and just remember, it's a 40-year-old protocol. I'm not quite sure if it predates Ethernet, but it's a race condition. And the commonly accepted packet size way back then was 576 octets, 576 bytes. And so in the DNS, there's this strange rule that says, without any other qualification, the most you can put in an answer is 512 bytes. And so if I've got a signature that I want to attach in the answer, I've got a remarkably small budget. I've got to put the question and the answer and the signature and make it all sit within 512 bytes. Well, that's not going to work, is it? I mean, in the end, that's just not going to work. Well, this is true. So being inventive folk, we invented a new form of, or a new bolt-on to DNS called extensions to DNS, eDNS. <laughs> We're inventive. And what this eDNS things had, it was a flag that says, I'm okay with large UDP packets. Forget about the 512 byte limit. Let's go bigger. And often folk would say, I'm okay with responses up to 4,096 bytes, which will fit most forms of cryptographic signatures, most resource records. Problem solved, right? Wrong. Because you see, now you start introducing the next problem. UDP is a very simple protocol. And when you try and put 4,096 bytes into a UDP packet, most networks are going to go, nope, that's too big. Now, IP, both V4 and V6, have this wonderful ability to fragment a packet, to take one packet and to produce two or more smaller packets that magically fit. In V4, every router can do this. So if I take a big packet and I find a tiny, tiny little next hop, I can slice and dice, reproduce the header over all the trailing packets, off we go. V6, lots more complicated. And in fact, in UDP, it doesn't work because I need to send a packet back to the sender going, oi, oi, that packet was too big, send it again. And the sender goes, but it's UDP. I sent and forgot. I don't keep a history of all the packets I've sent. I'm like, what do you want from me? It's gone, Jim. It ain't there no more. If you want another, it ain't happening. And so all of a sudden, this idea that I could fragment becomes a real issue in some of these protocols. So now we're left with a conundrum. How do you cope with large responses? So DNS has this, again, another piece of machinery added in called the truncated bit. I build as much as I can, and then I set the truncated bit to say there's more, but if you want more, you've got to ask using a streaming protocol, TCP. So fine, you ask over TCP and I send you everything. But let's just have a look at TCP for just a second. I've got to set up the session. That's a round trip time. Hi, hi, I'm me, are you you? Yeah, okay, let's go, three-way handshake. That's one round trip time you've just burned. Now I can then send a whole bunch of data, brrr, and I can even avoid fragmentation, brrr, and then I go fin, fin, ack, ack, you know, let's stop this. But all of a sudden, I've imposed cost. 
because now instead of a really quick, efficient, stateless, pack it in, pack it out, you know, all gone, I actually have to make a huge amount of work to actually go TCP. And all of a sudden, I'm doing only a third of the throughput I could do with UDP. So there's a story about Steve Jobs, which I think is relevant here. Someone was designing a new login experience for an early version of a Mac. And Jobs said, it looks fantastic, but we're not going to do this because you've added half a second to the boot up time for a Mac. And the programmer was, well, what's the problem? You only turn it on once a day and half a second's nothing. And Jobs said, I'm sorry, that's just not the world I live in. In my world, there are going to be millions, maybe billions of people turning this Mac on every day. And that half second adds up to somebody's entire lifetime of waiting for the Mac to boot. I want it to be the fastest boot experience in the world. Go away and recode this to get rid of the delay. So if we roll forward, Google isn't exactly Steve Jobs, but they have a similar personal mission obsession with the amount of time it takes to do something working through Google. They do not like delay. And you've just said, oh dear, doing DNSSEC adds delay. We have spent, I think, billions of dollars over the last few years trying to eliminate almost nanoseconds from web page delivery, from the experience of the user. Google even called their work speedy to actually highlight the fact that what they're trying to do is attack this problem of gratuitous delay. The internet is fast despite the speed of light in fiber, despite the size of the world, because we've spent a huge amount of time, effort, and money trying to make these protocols go as fast as we can. And all of a sudden, you're saying with DNSSEC, whoa, hang on, I'm going to go slow. But switching to TCP isn't anywhere near what slow actually means in DNSSEC, because I get the signature, right? This is all signed. Well, great. But how do you actually know that signature is the right signature? Oh, dear. I've got to ask for the keys of the zone of where I got the answer. Hello, potteroo.net. Tell me your key. Question, answer. Big answer might go to TCP. So I get back a key. Okay, good. Is that the right key? Yes, it seems to match. But how do I know that? Oh, I've got to go up a level and ask .net. What's the public or the hash of the public key that you have in your zone for potteroo.net? Oh, it says here is the DS record, the designated signing record. Here is the public record of that key, and here's a signature. Oh, God, another signature. Hi.net, what's the keys for .net? Well, here you are, and here's the signature. Oh, not again. Hi, Root, what have you got in your zone as the public key for .net? Well, I've got this key, and here's my signature. Oh, God. Hi, Root. What are your keys? Well, here's my DNS key record. Finally, finally, because I have stashed away as part of my config the signing key of the root. But how many DNS queries have I just done? And the answer is a lot. And if they were all big, they all had to revert to TCP. Now, you talk about Steve Jobs and his one second or whatever spent across a billion people, but we have now spent multiple seconds across every transaction. Because if you remember back almost an hour ago, 
every transaction starts with the DNS. And I've just added a few geological eons to the speed of the internet. And if there's one thing in all of this that says, are you really serious about this? That story is a bitter and difficult disappointment. Are you prepared to tolerate an internet that runs at the speed of chiseling the words into granite in this day and age? How much do you want to trust the answer? And how much do you want a fast answer that might possibly be wrong? And this is the judgment as engineers that we all try and make going, wow, that's a tough call. That's a really tough call. Now, it's not all bad. And there's been some remarkable work over the last few years to try and solve that by pre-provisioning. You see, when you try and validate www.potteroo.net, I know the questions you're going to ask. I know. So instead of waiting you to ask them and get the answers and flip over to TCP and do all that handshake and rigmarole and so on, why don't I just cut all the through this nonsense? Ask me using TCP right now, right here. And I will assemble all the answers that you're going to need and hand them to you here. Thunk. You have the root zone key signing key. Now you can work across all the things I gave you and validate to your heart's content that it's genuine. One DNS query, one DNS answer. So you can't get rid of the obligation to perform the mathematics of the check up and down the chain. Right. But you can get rid of the serialized delay around fetching the components of input that you're going to perform that operation on. So if we start the story with a lot of accumulating delay and necessary chains of activity, we're kind of getting to a place where we're saying we can optimize but that's also this thing. You don't optimize at the start of a journey. You have to get experience. And here we are in a long-lived journey of adding DNSSEC to DNS, having to think about this optimization to try and improve the time boundaries, not because the technology is bad, because the technology is actually pretty good, but because the economics, if you like, of the time cost of doing DNS lookups isn't good for us if it's slow. Well, that's why Google.com say for the moment, no, because until you can make this pre-provisioning work, these what we call chain DNS extensions, then the story looks pretty bleak. And part of the, I suppose, answer is those are now big answers. It's not a few hundred bytes. It is a few kilobytes. And to do that chaining means I've got to flip the DNS to TCP almost by default. And that means everything is more expensive because now I've got to open up TCP sessions. Now, let's talk about this just for a second, because what I'd like to do when I open up a TCP session, because that takes time and cost, is to reuse it again and again and again. And for you and me, what we call the stubs of the DNS <laughs> sitting at the edge, we always talk to the same resolver, recursive resolver, and we could actually do this because once you set up the TCP session, it's just a conversation, and it's got the incremental cost of UDP. That's not hard. But think about that recursive resolver. It's got to ask all of the authoritative servers at some point a question. And the reuse factor, apart from common net, is really, really low. So every time that recursive resolver needs to ask a question, it's going to take time and effort 
to actually set up a session that could handle large, large answers. So this stuff doesn't scale well. And oddly enough, that's been some of the big issues with acceptance. What goes on today, and I suppose this is the last thing against DNSSEC, is that there's almost no one out at the edge that independently validates. The channel between the stub resolver and the recursive is open, unencrypted, and unverified. And while Google, its public DNS resolver, does DNSSEC validation, as do many others, as do many, many others, as a client of that resolver, if someone can attack the path between me and it, I'm toast because I'm not getting the benefit of that recursive resolver actually doing validation. And in fact, it's worse than that. What Google says when it doesn't pass a validation test isn't, here's the answer, but it's bad. It says, because we wanted to reuse error codes, and there is no such error code in 40-year-old DNS to say DNSSEC validation failed, they unfortunately chose a code that says, this server is not going to answer that question. Serve fail. And oddly enough, it's the worst possible answer. Because if you withhold an answer from me and tell me, well, you've, I've failed, then what am I going to do? Being the aggressive search for answer stub resolver that I am, I will go and ask someone else and someone else and someone else. So when I get a bad answer from DNSSEC validation, I'll either go and find someone who's prepared to tell me the lie, that's really bad, or I'm going to wait forever to ask all of the recursive resolvers that I have been configured with and eventually conclude, geez, that name really doesn't exist. Not that it's a bad, badly signed name. It doesn't exist, which is kind of a worse answer. So in some ways, this technology is great. Its practical application just stinks. And trying to ask either that users have expertise, a PhD in DNS and cryptography together, no, not all of them do. Some do, thank God, but not all of us. And secondly, to try and think that we can handle these keys and all this cryptography with a degree of agility and knowledge that, quite frankly, doesn't exist, means that we really have gone way beyond, I suppose, the very basic practicalities of deployable technology. And for anyone who's working in the DNS, where they get pressure from all kinds of folk going, wow, lying in the DNSSEC is really, really bad. You should stop lying. You should turn on DNSSEC. And that pressure is out there today, and there's a lot of it. It's kind of a brave response to say, I have looked at this. I have assessed the strengths and the weaknesses of this approach. I think I'd be doing my customers a disservice on the whole if I turned on DNSSEC validation. And I'm not sure I've seen anyone actually make that case out there in the open and be applauded for it. That kind of, go, oh, no, 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 you must turn it on. But there are very good reasons why it's a brave decision to turn it on. Because when you start taking up seconds to respond, when you introduce more fragility and so on, then it's your help desk that's going to cop it. You know, people aren't going to say, well, that was a DNSSEC failure. It's kind of, that's a failure of your resolver. Go fix it. Kind of, well, that was DNSSEC and the way it's been built. So, yeah, the commentary, in fact, the larger security commentary 
of taking a set of protocols which were designed in a naive world where security was, if I think you're hassling me, George, I'll ring you up and abuse you. The internet was that small. I'll use the telephone to say, go away. Um, Doesn't work no more. But our protocols were designed in that age, and the DNS is certainly part of that. And putting security as a bolt-on has been difficult, is the best way of describing this. And none of them, the web PKI, DNSSEC, et cetera, none of them are as robust as we'd like to see, RPKI, et cetera. They all have their massive problems because of this kind of legacy issue of what used to work this way. If you add all this, you're going to add time, fragility, complexity, and all the operational foobars that go with it. And what are we meant to do? Ah, the internet's a bad idea. Everyone, um, hope you didn't throw out your telephone because, oh, God, we need it again. Well, that's, I suppose, one answer. It's not very satisfying. But at the same time, it's sort of, if these problems are fundamental, will more hacks make the existing hacks and their problems better? Is it just a case that we haven't hacked enough and added more bells and whistles? Do we need more bells and whistles? Or is it more basic than that? And that's kind of, I suppose, the PhD question, the million dollar, the billion dollar question out there, there is no answer to that question. It's always cheaper and easier to look for a bell and a whistle to bolt on. And that's been the saga of the DNS. But at some point, if there was a czar of the internet, at some point, such a non-existent czar would say, look, you know, it's back to the drawing board quite fundamentally. This is not going anywhere. And while I'm not willing to make that call, I'd have to say, it's a question where to from here. On that rather difficult note, I think we're going to have to keep a conversation alive about DNSSEC because we certainly don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's the only technology we've got for injecting fundamental trust into statements made at this stage in the DNS. And I think I'd like my bank and possibly my medical provider to continue to use mechanisms that say, you really can trust I am who I say I am. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Did you say my bank does DNSSEC? My bank would like to disagree with you. Oh, my God. essentially the problem we're facing. They have the tools available Whether they use them or not is a more nuanced question than we might have thought when we started this activity. And so I like to believe there's still a case to be made, but I don't think we can operate in a world where there is no case against. You've laid out quite a comprehensive statement. It's a cost as a community, and our intermediaries simply may not be willing to bear at this time. Right. I make some problems we think are solved. Some problems look like being career-long problems. Security and DNSSEC is in this latter category. If you wanted to forge your career, I can see no end to working on trying to make the DNS a little bit more trustable and authenticity to have a more prime role than it currently has. Yes. I think our listeners might enjoy that. So we can all look forward to a long and prosperous career working on securing the DNS. But perhaps mid-flight isn't the model we're looking for. And there's a conversation to be had about how do we get this working right from ground principles rather than as bolt-ons. 
Absolutely, George. I hope that's been interesting. It's certainly been fun to talk about it. Oh, I think it's been great. Thank you, Jeff. And I hope we'll be able to carry this one forward and look at this story again sometime. So far, a dear listener. Thank you. If you've got a story or research to share here on Ping, why not get in contact by email to ping at apnic.net or via the APNIC social media channels. Also, remember the measurement at apnic.net mailing list on Orbit is there to discuss and share relevant collaborative opportunities, grants and funding opportunities, jobs and graduate placings, or to seek feedback from the community on your own measurement projects. Be sure to check out the APNIC website for all your resource and community needs. Until next time, 